Hey, everyone out there, and thanks again for joining us here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. So again, you're probably used to me now, but my name is Amy Ho, and I'm an ER doctor and also the ASAP Now assistant editor and your friendly host of this podcast. So it is March, and spring is almost here. And with it comes one big holiday for us, National Doctors' Day, which is March 30th of this year, but every day is Doctors' Day in our lives, am I right? So we are here now with another episode showing you some practice-changing pearls in discussion and also some highlights on the parts of medicine that we wouldn't all know or think about on our daily day-to-day. So this episode is a little bit of a Canada Day. We have two excellent Canadian doctors, Dr. Ken Milne of Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, and also Dr. Ron Stewart. Now, Ken is coming on to discuss one of my favorite topics in emergency medicine, which is atrial fibrillation and heart failure and the management using calcium channel blockers versus beta blockers. Then we'll follow this with Dr. Ron Stewart, who is a repeat guest of ASAP Nowcast, but he's coming on with the story of being a patient. And it's real interesting because he tells us our story of snowy Canada and a kerfuffle with a moose. I felt like you couldn't get more Canadian than that. And it is an excellent story about being on the other side of the gown. So we have got a lot of content to cover today. So let's jump right in with, again, the famous Dr. Ken Milne. Hey, everyone at ASAP Now. So I'm really pleased today to be joined by Dr. Ken Milne, who is a very well-known contributor to ASAP Now and also probably very well-known to all of you guys at the Skeptic's Guide to EM. If you haven't checked out his site, it's the sgem.com. That's T-H-E-S-G-E-M.com. Or he's uh, quite uh, active on Twitter as well as at the S-G-E-M. And we brought him on to actually discuss a piece that he has in the magazine this month about calcium channel blockers versus beta blockers. So Ken, I wanted to say thanks so much for uh, coming on with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I I love talking nerdy and doing knowledge translation. Oh, definitely. So I actually love two things as well. I love me some diltiazem. Like, I will tell you, if I have an excuse to give some dilt, I will do it. And I also love me some heart failure. Like if I, if I even see shortness of breath on the board, I hop up there and just hope it's like, you know, a good, good, you know, heart failure, um, that I get to BiPAP and nitro and all that sort of thing. So, so in this piece, um, you actually did a review talking about calcium channel blockers versus beta blockers in, um, heart failure patients. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Yeah, this uh, this uh, article and, and talking about it stirred up some pretty strong feelings and uh, positions on social media. So I think it's great that you're having me on the show to talk about this article a little bit more. So Ken, I wanted to talk about beta blockers versus calcium channel blockers in heart failure. 
because A, you have this case that you're actually discussing that, but B, I was always told, even from like way back in residency, that you should never, ever, ever use a calcium channel blocker in a patient that has a low EF. So where did that come from? And then we'll kind of jump into what this study talked about. Sure. And, and it's nice to jump beyond the debate that has historically taken place about, are we going to rate control them? Are we going to rhythm control them? We're just moving past that right now. We're only talking about slowing them down, rate control, right? And so we're, we're dichotomizing, are you going to use a beta blocker? You're going to use a calcium channel blocker. I know what you're going to use. You want to use the diltiazem. But Always, always. <laughs> See, I've, I've gotten to know you already, but there's there's this historic aspect to, uh, you know, rapid atrial fibrillation and not, you know, there's this caution from the American Heart Association to try not to use calcium channel blockers in these patients with known congestive heart failure because uh, they're worried that this will worsen their outcome. And it's based on low-level evidence. I think it's a level C recommendation, but I, I do know that it's low-level evidence. So it's not really high-level, thou shalt not give. But it is in the American Heart Association that we should be cautious and uh, suggest against. Yes, it is a level C recommendation against giving calcium channel blockers to a patient with rapid AF. And by the way, I'm so old, when I talked about AF, apparently AF means something else to younger people. But uh, don't don't <laughs> use it AF. Um, so don't use it in rapid AFibbers. Uh, and that's that, that caution comes out of the AHA, the American Heart Association. Level C recommendation, caution not to give it in those patients because it could worsen their heart failure. Now, was there ever like an explanation of the pathophys or is it more of just a study where they looked at the outcomes in patients given DILT versus metope or something like that? So here's the deal. You know, the signal to noise ratio from the AHA with all their guidelines, only about 10% are level A and then the rest are level B and level C. About half of them are level C, 50%. I don't have time to dive into the level C because that's very low level <laughs> consensus statement. Um, I don't know. What do you do for AF? I don't know. What do you do for AF? Um, and we all know that pathophysiology, while it can be a great rationalization, whether or not it's tested and proven, um, very often it doesn't actually pan out. So you know what? I don't even do a deep dive into that. If it's level C recommendation, I know that they're standing on very thin ice. So didn't dive into it. No, absolutely. And I mean, that you're already assuring me that I can go to my well-loved DILT. So let's jump into this article that you um, looked at, which was acute management of AFib in CHF with reduced ejection fraction, emergency department, and AGEM in 2022. You did a great review on this, and I feel a little bit, you know, like DILT is something I can reach for. Um, tell us about this. Well, first of all, um, I had I had some amazing superstar residents, Dr. Tim Glazer and Dr. Matt Murphy, and they were from Lee Valley Health Network, and they helped uh, put this together. So give credit where credit's due. These residents are superstars. And they came to me and said, Ken, this is a common problem that we're getting in the emergency department. These people coming in, their ventricular rate is, you know, 140, 150, 160. And should we be giving them beta blockers? But there's been this like real push lately in emergency medicine to use diltiazem because probably in your experience too, it just works better. It's faster and it's usually more successful. And we've got some randomized control trials saying, you know what, the calcium channel blocker, the diltiazem works better 
for these rapid AFibbers than the beta blockers, but they were saying they're getting some pushback. And the AHA said, mm, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. So they picked this paper to try to have that conversation. Now, it's not high level evidence. Um, it's an observational study, but it should give us some reassurance with regards to there really isn't a thou shalt not or thou shalt give this instead of that. Yeah, and honestly, you know, based on reading your review here and also just our discussion now that the, you know, you shouldn't use calcium channel blocker recommendation was still even only C from the AHA, I'm feeling good, pretty good about this. So, good. So tell me, what do you do in your personal practice if you have this patient show up, like an elderly patient with CHF with a reduced ejection fraction in rapid AFib? Like, what do you reach for? How do you make that decision? So my automatic response and people who know me will say, Ken's going to say this. It all depends. It all depends. It takes place in a context. Even this study itself, right? Small observational study, 125 patients, you know, and they weren't randomized to one treatment or the other treatment, but they just wanted to see what was the adverse event rate. That was the primary outcome. Are we causing a swath of harm in patients if we're giving calcium channel blockers, in this case, diltiazem instead of a beta blocker. And what they found was there wasn't a statistical difference with regards to harm. So again, more reassurance for you, but again, it's an observational study. But when you ask the question, what am I going to do in this study? The, the clinicians didn't know a priori that the patient had reduced ejection fraction. They didn't know that they were in heart failure necessarily. They just had a diagnosis at some point within this 24 hours of presenting to the emergency department of having heart failure. They just wanted to capture the people that, yeah, they, they have heart failure. Yeah, they got reduced ejection fraction, I should say. And so we're, we're very many people harmed and there wasn't a statistical difference. So I don't know necessarily when the patient comes in, as you described, it's an older female patient, rapid AFib. I'm going to look at her and I'm going to say, hmm, is she already on a beta blocker? That's an important thing to know. Or is she on a calcium channel blocker? That may influence my decision. What's her blood pressure sitting at? That might influence my decision too, because, you know, the two different agents are going to drop that blood pressure a little bit differently. And then I don't know if she's in heart failure. And so I can look at them clinically. And if I've got someone who's coming in with congestive heart failure and they're obviously in florid failure and you know it when you see it it's like oh yeah they're wet uh, you know i might take pause and go okay all right it's a level c recommendation maybe i'm going to drift towards beta blockers in this case as opposed to calcium channel blockers but if i don't know that they don't have congestive heart failure or reduced ejection fraction i'm not going to pause as long and think hmm okay this seems reasonable approach to use either or. And so you're targeting your therapy to the individual in front of you. And we can always get out our ultrasound and take a look, you know, before we give it, before we push, before we hang the calcium channel blocker or the beta blocker to help, you know, target your therapy. But again, remember when you're doing this, we don't have a big randomized control trial of patients in congestive heart failure in with reduced ejection fracture a priori and say, okay, let's randomize them into a calcium channel and a uh, blocker and a beta blocker. We're, we're going on level C evidence. So um, yeah, just use your best judgment by gathering all the information and targeting that patient specifically. And that's why the answer to most questions is, yeah, it all depends. <laughs> and that's kind of the answer to emergency medicine because things aren't 
black and white, they're frequently gray. And I think you touch on a really good point here that we often don't know the patient. We have extremely limited history. And so this study to me reassures us that regardless of what your favorite is, beta blocker or calcium channel blocker, chances are it will be okay. Um, and then of course, throw the probe on. We see the patient in the emergency department. We make a decision based on limited information, a thin slice of information, and often we have to make that decision quickly on that limited information that could have life or death consequences. We're good at that. That's what we do, right? But then the person gets admitted, and let's say down the road, a day or two, they go into, you know, cardiogenic shock or get really bad with their heart failure. Then the cardiologist can go, hmm, oh, the emergency doctor gave them calcium channel blocker, and aha, that must be why they got worse. And if they got a beta blocker, they will go, oh, okay, yeah, and just move on, right? Oh, the disease process must have gotten worse. So you can see this post hoc rationalization can create this culture of confirmation bias. Well, if they went into heart failure, oh, they had calcium channel blocker, we attribute it to that. If they had a beta blocker and went into it, it must be the disease, and vice versa. And so when I was posting about this, you know, the cardiologists were like, oh my goodness, no, you have to give calcium channel or you can't give calcium channel blockers. You'll make these people worse. I've seen so many cases go down the toilet. I've had so many people circle the drain, go into congestive heart failure, go into cardiogenic shock if they got congestive heart failure, if they had a, a CCB. And the question is, okay, well do it, do a chart review and find out how many people got CCBs and how many people got beta blockers. Cause that's what they did here. And they found that there was no difference. And so there might be yep. some, you know, we all have cognitive biases, right? And so this could be recall bias, confirmation bias. Um, and, and uh, you know, you can see where it develops a culture in the cardiology department. Oh, well, geez, you know, these eMERGE docs, what are they doing? We don't know necessarily if they have heart failure when we see them. And we're just basing on the, inf we're making the best decisions we can with the information we have at the time. That's what we do. Absolutely. And I love hearing you talk about studies because you bring in all these biases and, you know, how to think, you know, like your handle says, to be skeptical about these um, recommendations that come to us in emergency medicine. And I, I, I think one of the big pieces, especially for me for AFib, is because we are able to discharge a lot of these patients home now. Um, we end up with a lot of bias because the cases that are hard, that get admitted, that get the cardiologist seen the next day are a lot of times not doing well because that's literally why we admitted them versus the ones that we admit anticoagulate, go home for follow-up to cardiology. Um, and who knows, you know, what the outcome is there because there isn't a cardiologist uh, looking at them the next day evaluating calcium channel blocker versus beta blocker. Yeah, this is denomination uh, neglect, right? And so if you don't know what the denominator is, if you're not seeing the 10 people we see send home, because we send 90% of our, our, our AFibbers home. I know it's different in the US, but we send 90% of them home. If you're not seeing the nine out of the 10 we send home and you're only seeing one out of the 10, you're not seeing the full population, right? So that's selection bias or denominator neglect. And I always say that, you know, the agenda is in the numerator, but the devil, oh, it's in the denominator. And you got to know what that denominator is before we start getting really judgmental about each other and about each other's practice. And I, I know my handle's all about skepticism, but it's skepticism with kindness. We should be kinder to each other. Yep, absolutely. And try to take the situation that someone was faced in the moment. So again, where we are experts, I think, is what you said, like making big decisions with 
very, very, very little information. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so uh, not, not to get too judgy with each other, right? Yep. Absolutely. I know. Be nice to one another. That's a pretty good, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good way to live regardless <laughs> of medicine. Yeah. Or no. Yeah. Well, perfect. Well, thanks so much again to you, um, Ken. As a reminder, this is Dr. Ken Milne from Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine reviewing this paper about heart failure and AFib with the old debate of calcium channel blocker versus beta blocker with, of course, a big kudos to his residents, Dr. Tim Glazer and Dr. Matt Murphy. Thanks again for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are a large volume ED, seeing 350 to 400 patients per day. When we have over 50% of our ED beds full of admitted patients, which happens frequently, we have a plan in place to move our physicians out to see patients in the waiting room. We also at the same time fill the hallways with stretchers where patients are interviewed, examined, and often given discharge instructions after their workup is complete. As you can imagine, this is not ideal as it is hard to ensure privacy and patient comfort in either of these settings. Patient experience is impossible to improve for these patients. Would you be happy if this were you or your family member? Physicians are unhappy as it feels like we can't provide the care we want to, the care we went into medicine for. We are drowning, stressed, and we need help desperately. This is one of the many stories ASEP collected to push for legislative change concerning emergency department boarding. Learn how your stories can help shape legislation that impacts the emergency medicine specialty by registering now for the Leadership and Advocacy Conference at asep.org forward slash LAC. Use promo code POWERUP to save $100 on registration. Hey, everyone. So I am so pleased to have a repeat guest with us. Um, I'm sitting here with Dr. Ron Stewart, emergency medicine physician and professor emeritus at Dalhousie Medical in Nova Scotia, um, who is so kind to share his story with us on being a patient. Dr. Stewart, thank you again. Thank you, Amy. It's a delight to be here and to connect up with who's ever out there in, in uh uh, uh, radio land or whatever we call it these days. Yeah, in ASAP Nowcast land. So when we chatted on a prior segment with you, you had this incredible story that involved a moose and an injury. So I would love for you to just tell us about that. Oh, okay. Well, it was a formative uh, episode in my career. I was just in my first year of practice in uh, the northern uh, northern part, the highland area of my island home, which is uh, the island of Cape Breton, which is part of Nova Scotia. And uh, I went there as a G, uh, general practitioner after graduating from Dalhousie. And um, I uh, made a lot of house calls. I, <laughs> that was required of, of, of one to do house calls. It was in, in the... Uh, 70s and it was uh, just uh, just uh, you know full-on uh, medicine and um, so I was uh, it was in the spring and we were uh, we get a lot of snow in the spring still here and uh, 
So I was called to a house call approximately 30 kilometers south of my office, which was in the uh, fishing village on the north coast. And so at three o'clock in the morning, I packed up and um, I had a medical school student visiting me who later became a very close friend. And he reminded me that uh, the weather was uh, going to be pretty bad. It was, uh, it was, there was a weather um, statement out. And uh, I should wear my parka, which uh, I did, uh, fortunately, uh, and went to the house call, which was a 96-year-old lady for a recheck because she had pain in her hip. She had fractured her hip. Uh, she fell out of a plum tree picking plums. So she, <laughs> that's the kind of uh, patients we had there. They're pretty rough and pretty uh, enduring. Um on the way back from the house call, apparently I had gone in quickly to the, the RCMP, the Mountie station, the police there, and uh, had a visit and then went on, despite the fact they warned me not to go north. But I did, and um, apparently approximately 10 or 15 kilometers away from the uh, Mountie station, I uh, it was quite a, se a severe blizzard, and I apparently uh, hid a moose on the highway, which wasn't unusual to do because this area of the province has uh, a lot of moose <laughs> on the roads. I, I went over the side of a very steep embankment. Fortunately, I caught on a tree or an outcropping and was there for approximately three hours to four hours. A fisherman found me the next morning and to make a long story short, I was taken into the local, my local hospital, which was a local outpost hospital. And the plan was to immediately transfer me to the regional hospital in Sydney, which was approximately 90 kilometers south. And then likely onward to Halifax, the uh, university hospital, because I was showing signs of of uh, growing, um, uh, growing uh, probably a clot, but they weren't sure what it was. And I just sort of merrily went on my way. This is all secondhand, of course, and told to me, but I ended up in the neurosurgical unit uh, after my meeting up with the moose for approximately um, three or four months. I was in rehab for a total of about four or five months. And then later came back to uh, to work um, early on, earlier than I should have, because my speech, I had uh, 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 right, uh, right hemiparesis, so I was unable to walk, really. I, I mean, the physiotherapists pretended that I was walking. They were actually dragging me around in the rehab, but it was, it was called walking. Anyway, uh, I also had uh, marked aphasia, expressive aphasia. So I, I couldn't speak very well and went back a little too soon and gradually realized that the patient load began to shift from myself, who usually carried the bulk of it, to my partner who was really looking to leave the area as well. And so I felt it unfair. And it was at that time that my director of emergency medicine at the university hospital, we had been conspiring to find an academic program for me 
to enroll in somewhere in order to come back to Nova Scotia and really transform the emergency department to what it should be. Uh, so the only program that he found was in Los Angeles, of all places. And so I decided, well, I'll give it a go. And uh, I actually got a, an appointment for, uh, for an interview. Uh, went off to L.A., did the interview with Gail Anderson and others at the department at the time. It was only almost a year in existence at the time at USC County. And um, I, for whatever reason, I never really questioned it, I got the position. And so I packed <laughs> up my Volvo station wagon from the north of Nova Scotia on the island and uh, drove con continually for six days to Los Angeles. And when I went there, I had never seen a gunshot wound. I had never seen a stab wound that was intentional. Uh, even though our hospital here was uh, 800 beds in the University Hospital in Halifax, I still didn't see these things. It wasn't a Canadian disease, basically. Um, and so the first night I was, uh, the next night I was on admitting surgery, I had five stab wounds and four gunshot wounds, all of whom required life-sustaining support, life support before they went into surgery. And that was my job as the emergency resident was to keep them alive, yeah. basically. Yeah, now I, oh, I was, I was just going to say, like, this is so interesting that, you know, your injury is kind of what spurred a change in career. But I want to talk a little bit more just about that event. Like, I know you don't remember everything just by nature of, uh, of what happened. But, you know, tell me about, you know, what you do remember. Like, was it different for you being on, you know, the other side, like as being a patient instead of being like a provider? Like, what was that like? It was. It was indeed. And I don't really recall what I was feeling because I wasn't really feeling anything until I woke up in, in the hospital and began to perceive what was going on. And the, the one thing that really was unusual for me was to look up at a group of residents and staff people standing around on rounds. They would round on me and, and <laughs> I would be the focus of the rounds. And I did not like this at all. But I couldn't really express myself because I was aphasic. And so I would burst out crying, apparently. And, and, and of course, you know, it was, it, was, it, it was alarming to them because they knew, they knew me just within a year. I was on the wards doing what they were doing. So it was a reverse, uh, reverse uh, everything. <laughs> and, but not only that, I had to go through physiotherapy and speech therapy. Now... Uh, I developed a tremendous dislike for physiotherapists, I'm ashamed to say, because they made you do stuff that you didn't want to do. You know, they <laughs> made you try to walk and they really were just dragging you around. You know? But they were calling it, let's go for a walk, Dr. Stewart. And I, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, and I would be, you know, and they did the best. So I developed, I just really disliked them coming into the room. However, the speech therapists were wonderful people because they were young women, usually in their early form of their career, and they would uh, teach me, you know, speech and teach me how to disguise my disability, for example. 
and and they had various ways of doing it, like cover, like covering or scratching your your nose when you tried to speak and nothing came out. Uh, various things like this. So I loved speech, speech therapists, but I just despised physiotherapists. And it took me a while to 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 smarten up and say, "Wait a minute! They got you walking again. What more do you want here?" <laughs> so I I was I was uh, one of the other things that really I never forgot, and I do remember some of this is that they, uh, when I got able to sit up. I would be sitting in a wheelchair and the round, the people around, you know, the staff and the residents would make rounds. But I had a collar on. I had a, a stiff, uh, you know, a collar. So I couldn't look up. So, but they would never sit down. They would be talking to me and I would be talking to their crotches, basically. So, <laughs> because I, I, I couldn't look at them. I, I couldn't move my head. And so I was quite... Um, unimpressed by this. In fact, I was quite resentful. And when I recovered, I wrote an essay that I was going to send into the Canadian Medical Association Journal. I never did, fortunately, but it was called Conversations with Crotches. And <laughs> I, it, it, was, it wasn't me, really. It was my expressing my, my uh, bitterness at being disabled. So I never did publish that. I, I doubt if they would have accepted it. But when I became a teacher in the medical school, which I've done for m my career after that, I said every time I will meet with that group, and we group uh, teach in groups of eight here. And so the clinical skills group was especially interesting to me. Um, and every every the beginning of every session or every group, we would have the discussion and the examination of the case in wheelchairs. And my point was, you need to know what this means when you can't look someone in the eye and converse with them as a patient. You need to get to their level, whether literally or figuratively. And I never forgot that. I never did. Yeah. And that's an amazing lesson. Like it, it seems like, you know, because you've had the perspective of being on the under, other side, you, you understand what it's like to have a, you know, a temporary disability. You understand what it's like to go through physiotherapy. What, was there anything else that shaped your point of view or your practice as a doctor after this? Like you had mentioned how much you hated rounds as a patient. Like I find that really interesting. Like, did you adopt what you did after as a, a physician because of your experience? Yeah, well, one of one of my one of the reasons I was I, I, I reacted to rounds was I was expressing my frustration. Basically, I was frustrated I wouldn't be there standing, you know, and looking down at the patient. I hope I didn't do that much after that. But but the the the, the other thing too was was that I came away kind of I was often the go-to guy. If there was a physician who was injured or in some way disabled that came into our department or into the hospital, they would ask me to go see them. So I kind of became a, a, a semi-specialist in physicians, disabled physicians, you know, and, 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 and I wasn't ever prepared for that. But 
so I went and talked to some, certainly the physiotherapists, and also I, I felt guilty. I had to go see the physiotherapist and apologize to them. But uh, I also talked to rehabilitation people. And so my, I often made the point to our emergency residents that you may think that your job is immediate and at the beginning of the, of the patient's experience, but it must remember this is only the beginning of their experience and maybe the end of yours in terms of your connection with them. But you have to do your best to prepare them for what's coming. And, and so that influenced me a lot. And, uh, and I, 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 I continued that through the rest of my career. Yeah, that's so, like I said, such a unique story. Um, and I think it, it teaches us a lot of what, you know, this being a patient segment is about, which is that when we put ourselves in the shoes of our patients or when we, you know, end up there because we're all human too, it really um, enhances our practice as physicians sometimes in unexpected ways, which I think you've shown amazingly, not only in just your own experience, but also, you know, as like a big career change. So Dr. Stewart, I want to just say thank you so much for sharing your story and for, you know, giving us some insight into what, what, what I know was a very personal and vulnerable time for you. Well, Amy, you're very kind. Uh, I I really appreciate being able to share this, uh, and I also am am happy that someone might hear it that that may may learn something or or may at least appreciate what how valuable their role is in the uh, uh, in the role as a physician. We have a great privilege. We do all of us, and I hope that this helps. So that is it for us this month. Thanks again to all of you for tuning in and for keeping tuning in for our repeat audience. And of course, as always, a huge thank you to our guests, our Canadians, Dr. Ken Milne and Dr. Ron Stewart. Now, be sure to check out the rest of the magazine in your mailboxes. As always, we got a great article on bronchiolitis, which this is certainly the season for on how to manage your illnesses in these teeny tiny babies. We also have a great residency spotlight to UC Davis, which is a good shout out, especially so close coming out of residency appreciation day. And we also have a really good ASAP commentary and survey on the FTC's non-compete ban, which may be a little practice changing for you depending on your employment structure. So we are doing another round of podcast-only content coming up. So you are interested in contributing to us in any way or have an idea for something that we should feature, please, please, please let us know. You can tweet us if you have an idea at ASEPNow or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We are always looking to expand our horizons and expand our content for things that you want to hear and that hopefully get to feature you. So we would love to hear your thoughts and any feedback you have and keep you all tuning in. So thanks again, you all, for your time, and we will see you all next episode. Mm-hmm.